Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Anne Charles. On the show today, Netflix reverses its subscriber losses. What's the secret behind its turnaround? Rupert Murdoch makes a bid to reunite the Fox and News Corp empire. We hear the gossip from Mipcom. Plus, to mark the BBC's centenary, Boyd Hilton shares his top six telly hits and our guests discuss the broadcaster's legacy and future. And in the media quiz, we play a game of birthday trivia. That's all coming up in this edition of The Media Podcast. In the news this week, Meta has announced it will turn off Facebook instant articles after seven years as the platform moves away from news publishers and towards video content. The social media company's influence over GIFs has also been curbed, with Watchdog Ofcom ordering the company to sell its Giphy subsidiary as the 2020 merger raised the risk of reducing competition in the digital advertising market. Channel 4 has suspended presenter Christian Guru Murthy for a week after a recording of him referring to MP Steve Baker as a derogatory term circulated on social media. He has apologised. And thousands of people have been glued to a live stream of a decomposing lettuce after the Daily Star ran a front page article to see if the 60 pence salad item would last longer than Liz Truss. The lettuce is now 1,000 to 1 to become the UK's next Prime Minister. This week also marks a major media anniversary. That's right, we've reached 200 episodes of The Media Podcast. We're indebted to a collection of amazingly talented media pundits who keep this show going with their predictions, wisdom and gossip. We send the warmest thank you to our podcasts and to you, our loyal listeners. The show has had some legendary hosts at its helm and the marvellous Ollie Mann shared his thoughts on what makes the show so special. Hello, Media Podders. Ollie Mann here. You may remember me from the Interregnum. Uh, crikey, the Media Podcast, 200 today. Who'd have thought? 200 years old. Uh, a letter from the King is surely imminent. I still listen to every episode. I can honestly say with certainty this is probably the only show ever of which I can say I've listened to every episode, right from the Steve Hewlett and Gareth McLean days all the way through Matt Wells, if that isn't a disturbing image. Uh, the frivolous Ollie Man years. And now it's just as gloriously gossipy as ever. It's a delight to still have you on my phone, in my ears. Thank you. How hilarious to think The Guardian got rid of this show because it wasn't profitable. Ridiculous. How they must be ruining the day now. <laughs> I, I miss doing it in person. I miss having drinks afterwards with all the panel. 
Now I just listen and have all the drinks in my head, which is uh, better for my waistline. I've also now, I can tell you, read Maggie Brown's book, uh, which I promoted the forthcoming publication of on this show for half a decade. So I really feel my life's work is done. Oh, Ollie, that was lovely. And before this gets too much into a soppy media love fest, we better introduce today's guests who are here to tackle the headlines. Karen Robinson from Edelman and media commentator Kate Bulkley. Karen, it's been a big week for uh, media with um, covering the unfolding of political events in the UK. What, what have you been up to? I think like most of the country, I've been glued to the screen watching the best TV drama on BBC One News. It's actually been really interesting. I said to my husband last night that we switched on uh, live TV, which was the kind of we don't normally watch a lot of live TV because we're always on streaming, but with all the unfolding news, the best drama that we had available to us was was what was happening in, in Westminster, which struck us as a, a kind of interesting media transition and goes to show there's still quite a lot of a role for live news to play. I'm sure Netflix will be writing a, a series for 2040 or something as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> and Kate, you have been uh, jet-setting all over the place. Uh, you've just been at uh, MIPCOM this week surrounded by global television royalty. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, MIPCOM gossip later in the episode. But um, can you just give us a, a little hint about what it was like to be in Cannes? Well, I can definitely say that um, there's already scripts about, uh, you know, imploding prime ministerships uh, being trotted around the croisette. So clearly there are going to be some fast turnaround documentary uh you know, maybe they'll be fact, factual entertainment. Maybe they'll just be entertainment. I don't know. Um, the other big thing was uh, just a huge push into advertiser-supported services that we call AVOD, very nice um, acronym, and also Fast Channels, which is this whole shift from the Netflix subscriber streaming to advertising. A lot of M&A activity as well that we can talk about, uh, particularly the rumor about whether whether ITV will will it or won't it spin off its ITV studios business. Can you tell us um, how this story was unfolding during the event? Yes, I mean, this was broken by the Financial Times and it, it caused ITV share price to go up, which of course is exactly what Carolyn McCaw, who is the CEO of ITV, wanted to happen. Uh, the stock, I think, bounced about eight points when um, this rumor came out. No, it hasn't been confirmed by ITV, but people who are close to ITV say that there is an internal valuation going on, which is a classic thing that happens when a company is trying to just sort of see how things are looking and maybe also try to pop their share price in this case. I think it's about evaluation. I think it's about putting a, a flag in the, in, the, in the sand and saying, yes, we're worth something. There's just a lot going on in terms of M&A. Well, I think we might be coming to some of that later as well. So we better, we're getting straight into things. So we better get into our first story, um, which is that after years of ups and downs, Netflix's fortunes appear to have settled for the better. The streamer reportedly added 2.4 million global subscribers during the July to September period, which reverses the losses suffered earlier in April. So... Kate, can you help us understand a bit about the ups and downs here? And where did that 2.4 million come from? And, and where do you think Netflix is at really at the moment? Well, where they're at is that they are, let's say, in a transition. Uh, the market for subscription services has obviously become quite saturated. We have um, all the big studios are now have now launched their own subscription VOD or streaming services. 
Where did the 2.4 million come from? Basically, mostly from APAC, which is Asia Pacific uh, region, which is actually still a growth region. And also Netflix did a few clever moves, for example, launching a mobile version of Netflix in Asia, which is obviously the cheaper price point. So there were ways to, let's say, drive up some subscribers. Uh, you know, the subscription VOD business is not dead, but Netflix has obviously got a lot more competition. So that's number one. Number two, the other thing they're looking at really strongly because they're going to launch it next month is an advertiser supported tier, which means in other words, they're going to have not just a subscription service. They're actually going to have, you know, pay less, get some ads. Won't that be marvelous? And there's a lot of controversy about how well it's going to do, but it's certainly changing their proposition as they look to a more competitive future. And Karen, what's your take on the Netflix increase? Do you share the opinion that things are going to uh, start to look a bit better for Netflix or is it still a little bit precarious? Well, I think it's an interesting time in their development. I think, you know, let's not let's not down talk Netflix. It's, it's been a very successful company in terms of gaining market share. It's getting, I think, about 8% of all streaming services here in the UK, about 7 plus in the US, which is very respectable. Whether that's commercially viable is another question. And I think it is you know, there's growth of markets in Asia, as Kate rightly says, there are other ways that they can grow. I am a little more skeptical that the advertiser model is going to be the solution to their problems. Um, I think we've got a saturation of people trying to market, uh, trying to sell through advertising. I think for the social media platforms, they've perhaps maxed out their ability to commercialize with advertising. But I think they've got such rich properties with their content. It'd be really interesting to see them explode those out perhaps into other media rather than just trying to ever, ever different advertising models, which I think is perhaps a bit, you know, it probably limits their indefinite future. But that's maybe not everybody's opinion. <laughs> the issue is that we are moving into a streaming universe. Everything is moving into streaming. And if you want to grow your subscription streaming service, if you're Disney, if you're Netflix, if you're Peacock, if you're whatever, Paramount Plus, you want to keep as much content that's exclusive to you on your service as long as you can. And Netflix, unfortunately, is in a position where they are not a studio, so they don't have a deep, deep library. They've started to commission more and more originals, which of course costs a lot of money, which is why you're hearing uh, Karen talk about, is this sustainable? It is not. So that is a huge problem, and they can't acquire as much content now because there isn't as much content to acquire because everybody else is getting into the business, which is why I call it more competitive. So in terms of, you know, how they're going to go forward, I don't see quite how they're going to do it. I was talking to some agency people, the CPMs out of the gate that they're charging are, you know, 50 CPMs. I mean, that's huge. I mean, so CPM is cost per mil, the, which is the price you pay for every 1000 impressions an ad receives. Well, I'm not sure it's worth 50 CPMs. I mean, it's like, that's a huge uh, multiple. That's, that's more expensive than the Super Bowl, okay, if that gives anybody any context. So, you know, yeah, they'll do deals, whatever. I just don't see that the ad tier is actually going to help them work that much. I think perceptually it will help them in terms of, you know, maybe people won't spin out. Maybe they'll spin down. That's what we call when people wouldn't go from a premium tier to an ad-supported tier, which obviously costs less money. But keep in mind, Netflix nor Disney are launching free services. These are going to be subscription with ads, so lower price plus some ads. That's not a free service. Yeah, and I'm not sure how attractive that is to, to a subscriber. So we'll, we'll see how it really plays out. And, and the other thing that Netflix has started doing, which I think is interesting to watch in terms of keeping subscribers on the platform, is they've started to, um, they're still dropping a lot of things all at once, 
But they're also starting to release things more incrementally. Stranger Things in its latest episode came out in two batches. That's smart in a lot of ways because it keeps people on the on the platform for a bit longer. So if you want to watch your show, you've got to keep it for another month, another month. You can drag people through their prescri- subscriptions a little bit longer if you if you release things in that way. So and that's a big cultural shift from Netflix's original all binge all the time strategy. As Karen says, they're starting to not do what we call drop all the series at the same time. So you can binge, binge, binge. They're starting to do what we call appointment to view television. Gee, that's something we've been doing since the 50s when television started. So it's very interesting how the streaming services, as they grow up and mature and start to you know, have to compete with, let's say, a lot bigger um, animals in the, in the forest, like Disney, they have to start playing different. In fact, some of the original rules <laughs> that made, uh, made television work. Ironic, but true. Talking of the original rules, the BBC has marked 100 years this week. There's been a, a little bit of celebration on air. Um, so, Karen, what, what do you see as the BBC's legacy? Well, the BBC is is an extraordinary broadcaster. And I think I've said before on this podcast, I think people in Britain don't necessarily fully grasp how well respected it is internationally and how unusual a, a model it is. I mean, looking at it from America, a public sector, a public service broadcaster of that scale and ambition is really interesting and impressive to see, um, to be honest. I think the BBC is in a very precarious moment um, in its history, both internally and externally, both within the corporation and in terms of the political pressures on it from outside. So I, I hope that we will take this moment to pause and reflect upon just the sheer scale and epic nature of the quality. I think it's some of the best TV news that you can watch on television anywhere in the world. I think it has some of the best entertainment and drama. Not everything it comes up with is great, and definitely, um, you know, it has its strengths and weaknesses. There are other broadcasters are available, but I think we uh, we shouldn't underestimate the achievement this nation put together for the, over the last hundred years of a broadcaster of such such breadth and quality. And so, Kate, it's it's easy when you have a 100-year anniversary to, to reflect on the past, but what do you see are the BBC's biggest challenges and opportunities over the next 100 years, if it even makes it that far? Oh, um, you know, hopefully it will. I mean, I'm a great uh, believer in the BBC as well. What's interesting now is under Tim Davey, who's the BBC Director General, so the head, the, you know, the CEO, basically, of the company, the studios business um, has been, uh, let's say, prioritized in, in a big way in the sense that he realizes that they have to get in earlier, get a hold of the right talent, get a hold of the right scripts, and actually, if not make it themselves, at least co-produce it with BBC Studios so they can retain some rights. So they can not only show it in the um, UK window, in other words, on the UK service, uh, but also can show it around the world, which is a way to make money. The studio business has about, it's a little bit over a billion pounds in tur- turnover now, but 70% of the productions that they make and the revenues that they make, it comes from outside the UK. So that's an interesting business. Um, they're just sending Mark Lindsay to LA to actually help sort of make sure that they get in on those conversations early. It, the co-production model is obviously the way forward for them. That's, you know, they can't do everything themselves and hold on to every right. It's just too expensive. I mean, you've got Apple, you've got Disney, you've got Netflix. I mean, these are big, you know, Hollywood studio, deep-pocketed players, and they're going to pay more to get the Jody Comers and whoever it is of the world uh, to work for them. Uh, we've also got um, BBC Studios bought the rest of Sid Gentle, which is obviously the Killing Eve producer. There's just a lot going on in terms of M&A in the sector because content is king as usual you know it's like if you own the ip the intellectual property rights you can do a lot more than if you don't 
Is all of this positive news for the industry or does it mean that there's actually a detrimental impact on the indie sector because there are just fewer independent indies around? There, there are very few independent studios left, actually. Um, you know, Lionsgate is still independent. E1 is still independent. One could um, say those are smaller ones. And both of those, by the way, have rumors swirling around them as well. So Lionsgate, which does The Rookie, and they do a lot on distribution, there's been a rumor, well, not a rumor, they've actually they've actually said that they might spin off their Stars Play, uh, which is their streaming business, which, they, of course, they've renamed Lionsgate Plus because you have to have a plus after your name now. That's the way you do streaming. <laughs> or they might spin off the, the, the distribution production side of Lionsgate. E1, similar situation. The core business is now considered to be more... Uh, focused on IP, which they think will go into intellectual property, which they think will go towards gaming and metaverse and all this other stuff, and the sort of traditional, more traditional film and television production side of the business could or could not be merged with somebody else. So uh, there's just a lot of movement going on because, again, content is so important to all of these production houses. So what other things surprised you during the course of the conference? So the metaverse was interesting in the sense that we not only had one of the biggest deals announced, or let's say talked about it, it's, it was done, it's not actually closed yet, but it was a, it was announced a couple of weeks ago. But it's all about IP. It has to do with the Lord of the Rings IP. Uh, and Tolkien, obviously, is a, a very big piece of intellectual property. These are rights that were held by a company that wanted to offload them. It's now been bought by a company that many of us had never heard of called Embracer. Embracer is a Swedish company that's been hoovering up um, all kinds of comic book rights and gaming rights. And they've bought up this Tolkien, uh, these rights to the Tolkien library to do all kinds of different things with, many of which have to do with the metaverse. And what was interesting about it for me was, uh, independently, Tim Davey, who's the head of the BBC, also mentioned the metaverse and said that the thing that's, you know, that he's thinking about a lot more these days is, is about gaming and about, you know, interactive type, um, experiences, let us say, with content. Now, we've talked about this for a long time, but I think it's now actually coming to fruition. And that means a whole nother door has opened to how you exploit and create different kinds of content. And I think that's exciting. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the words of Kate Bulkley, content is king and over the past hundred years the BBC has produced some remarkable shows. We asked our programming specialist, Boyd Hilton from Heat magazine, to dig through the archives and share the cream of the crop. Here's Boyd Hilton with his best six BBC television shows from the past 100 years. First of all, let me just say how difficult it was to narrow it down to six because the BBC output in my lifetime has been astonishing. But here we go. Number one, Doctor Who. I'm a massive Whovian. I am one of the kids who watched it when John Pertwee was in it. He was my first Doctor through Tom Baker, etc. Doctor Who sums up the unique nature of the BBC. I can't imagine any other broadcaster creating the show, inventing ways of working around the fact that um, the actor who played Doctor Who wanted to leave, so they created the idea of regeneration. And of course, the, the reboot of it, the um, revival of it by Russell T. Davis was um, one of the highlights of my TV viewing life. And long may it continue. And we, we approach the 60th anniversary of the show itself next year. Um, could not be more excited about that. Then I've gone for um, 40 Towers. 40 Towers is, I think, the greatest, most perfect British sitcom of all time in the sense that every single one of its of its episodes across those mere two series were perfect little gems of TV writing and performing. And I go back and watch them, you know, probably every year I've watched them since they came out in the 70s. I think I must have been 11, 12 when they first aired in the 70s. And as a family sitting around watching it with my brother and my parents, um, you knew right from the start there was something absolutely special about this show and the way Connie Booth and John Cleese wrote it and performed it. And there is a timeless brilliance to its farcical genius. So yes, 40 Towers, every single episode, a gem. Then I've gone for one of the greatest drama series of all time, The Singing Detective, which was Dennis Potter's masterpiece. Dennis Potter, I think, is one of the key iconic figures in BBC drama history. Um, And it's an example of how the BBC allows dangerous, absolutely bold and brilliant creative writers to give them their head to do the kind of shows they want to do. And there's more examples of that as well in a minute. And it mixed um, a kind of film noir, Philip Marlowe tribute. It used musicals. It used um, the the characters lip sync to classic musical songs. It was a kind of biographical exploration of one man's midlife crisis. It was just phenomenal. And I spent... um, 1989, New Year's Eve, watching all five episodes of it in a marathon screening in New York, and it was one of the greatest New Year's Eves of my life because I'm sad like that. My next choice is The Office, one of the most perfect comedy series of all time, created, of course, by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. They created the character of David Brent. They sent it out on a kind of sample video. 
BBC commissioned it and gave them full creative power over that show and it's a magnificent masterpiece. It changed the face of TV comedy, of course, relying on the faux documentary format that was influenced by things like Spinal Tap, but certainly as far as TV was concerned, it then created a massive rash of faux documentary comedies, but The Office is the first of the modern era and the best. And again, every single episode warrants repeat viewing. And the final episodes, the Christmas specials, were masterpieces of the rom-com format as well. So The Office is an absolute undoubted all-time classic for me. And coming more up to date, I've picked Fleabag, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I do think she's a genius. The word genius is overused. But again, it's funny how the, the three comedies I've picked, Forty Towers, The Office and Fleabag, all have two perfect series and that's it. Then they kind of give up because I think any more watering down of the idea and kind of coming up with any more episodes... When you've got, in, in all these cases, basically 12, maybe 13 absolutely perfect half hours of TV comedy um, would have ruined it in the end. So quite rightly, Phoebe Waller-Bridge stopped at two series. The opening episode of series two, where they're gathered around that table in the restaurant, where revelations come flying out and Phoebe Waller-Bridge has been accidentally punched in the face, etc., is one of the greatest single episodes of television of all time, for sure. I've also picked another recent uh, work of absolute genius and another example of the BBC giving a creative person the power and freedom to pretty much do what they wanted to do is Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You. This was a series based on a real event that happened to Michaela Cole, the writer, producer, director, star of the show, when she was sexually assaulted. She used that experience as the basis for a show which I think explored sexuality, gender, um, class to some extent, and relationships in this contemporary world we're living in, in an incredibly beautiful, fascinating, shocking, disturbing, um, authentic way. It's very recent, but I may destroy you. As soon as I watched it, it was immediately propelled into a kind of modern classic category for me. And very interestingly, Michaela Cole went for the BBC. She was offered millions by Netflix, but she stuck. She wanted to do it with the BBC, given creative freedom and given ownership of her own work, which Netflix wouldn't give her. So I think I May Destroy You is an example of the BBC operating at its finest. And Michaela Cole created an all-time classic of a show. Those are my top six shows of all time. Can I just say bubbling under the likes of Sherlock, Line of Duty, I, Claudius, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, I mean, I could go on, but in the end, I went for those six. The Singing Detective, 40 Towers, The Office, Fleet Bag, I May Destroy You and Doctor Who. If you want to see or hear more of me, you can catch me on Twitter, at Boyd Hilton, that's my name, and at the same on um, Instagram, and on my Pilot TV podcast every week out each Monday, and my Footballistically Arsenal podcast, if you're an Arsenal fan, also every week. Thank you very much. It's time for a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this with a Murdoch merger news in brief. And I'm back with our two marvellous guests, Kate Bulkley and Karen Robinson, for some news in brief. Though birthdays abound this week, the Sunday Times also turns 200 and its owner Rupert Murdoch has been ruffling feathers as he considers reuniting News Corps and Fox. So Karen, can you give us an, an update on what's happening with this story? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, having diverged the two businesses about 10 years ago, 
Um, he's now wanting to bring them back together, thinking that he can make some efficiencies, he says. I mean, he is 91 years old. Lachlan Murdoch is running one part of the empire. What that's going to mean for the future of it, who knows? It's an interesting time to choose to do it. Right now in the US, Fox News is subject to, a, I think, $1.6 billion lawsuit um, against it for some defamatory statements that they made against an online voting company, Dominion Software. It is not doing particularly well in that court case. They've had a couple of judgments kind of against them in in procedural judgments. So it will be really interesting to see. And I'm not sure whether that's a factor that whether that comes into it. But Fox News is potentially in a slightly precarious position at the moment. You know, personally, um, I I think it's been good for the news business that um, it's been a bit separate from the TV. It's allowed it to kind of have that independence. But ultimately, Rupert Murdoch (laughs) calls the shot. So we'll see what happens. So, uh, Kate, is it likely that there would be some legal challenges because in terms of this being a, a competition or a market control issue due to this merger? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think this is a crazy idea, to be honest. Um, I think that, I mean, I don't quite understand it, to be honest. Uh, it, why would you try to bring them together, given the scandals that went on with um, the phone hacking, etc.? Maybe you bring the news titles together and you can maybe make more better TV, but you know, hey, I mean, I worked for EBN, which was part of the Wall Street Journal at one point, which is a television brand trying to, you know, hook up these things. It's not, you know, you don't need to actually be part of the same company to do that. So I'm not really sure there's a lot of sense in this. I think that there will be challenges, and I think it's, uh, well, we'll see, as as Karen says, I mean, Murdoch likes to do what Murdoch likes to do. One thing I will say is on the stage at MEPCOM, Rob Wade, who runs Fox Entertainment, Okay, he's a CEO of Fox Entertainment. When he was asked this question, his answer was, uh, I'm the CEO, but this is way above my pay grade. Well, there you go. We shall follow uh, the twists and turns on the media podcast uh, with much interest. But of course, talking of the media podcast, we couldn't possibly conclude our 200th episode without everyone's favourite segment, which is the media quiz. And to tie in with our birthday theme, we're playing a game of birthday trivia. Now, unfortunately, nobody has given us any buzzers as a birthday present, so we still have to buzz in in the traditional way, which is with our names. So, Kate, you will say... Kate Bulkley. Excellent. And Karen, you will say... I'll just say Karen. (laughs) There you go. Speed advantage. (laughs) So um, off we go. Who or what uses BBC Radio 4's Today programme as one of the official measures to prove that the UK still exists? What are you talking about, Barb? I mean... You've stumped me. (laughs) I'll give you a clue. It's to do with uh, potential uh, (laughs) nuclear warfare. (laughs) Nobody at all. Okay, uh, it's the Royal Navy. So uh, the rumours used to be that the Navy's nuclear submarines every so often would pop up. And if they couldn't hear any signal from Radio 4, that was one of their tests that something awful had happened above ground. Excellent. (laughs) God, I hope they've moved on from there. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've, we've, yeah. Well, it's always terrifying if you know you, you, the long wave transmitter goes down or something. And <laughs> yeah, it would, it would be a horrible yeah. thing if they popped up, determined that the UK didn't exist, but it was just that the, we'd all switch to streaming. Radio waves can be blocked, Anne. For God's sake! I mean, look what happened to the Ukraine. <laughs> Don't tell Anne. Tell the Navy. <laughs> Navy. Say <laughs> that your media strategy. <laughs> I'm sure I thought that. Question number two. This is a true or false question. The media podcast originally began as a BBC production. Karen. Karen. I think that's false. I think you were... Uh, 
Gar- Guardian production? 100% correct. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> though, I'm, although Mark Damazer has, uh, has talked about the fact that the existence of the media podcast certainly influenced content uh, that he chose to commission for Radio 4. But yes, the media podcast started as a Guardian show. And question number three, true or false? The Sunday Times was not always owned by the same company as The Times. Karen, I'm going to take a punt and say that might be true. It is true. The newspaper initially launched as the New Observer in 1821. It then changed its name to the Sunday Times a year later, but it wasn't actually owned by the same company as the Times until 1966. So there you go. Uh, So that makes our winner, Karen. And you take the historic title of being the 200th media podcast quiz champion. Congratulations. What an honour. Yay! I'll be putting that on my CV. (laughs) Thank you so much for sticking with us. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Now, there are three simple things you can do to support the team so we can keep bringing you media news for the next 200 episodes. Become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash mediapod. There you'll be able to access an archive of deep dive interviews with media experts. That's patreon.com slash mediapod. Or if you don't have the spare change, don't worry, you can help by telling your colleagues about the show on Twitter or LinkedIn. And of course, follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on your podcast app of choice. You can subscribe for free at podfollow.com slash the media podcast. My name's Anne Charles. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. And it was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.